Good morning. Thank you for gathering with us this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Thank you for giving us a chance to lead you, to disciple you just a little bit closer to Jesus, just a little bit further down the road to all of us becoming more and more like him as individuals, as families, and as a church. We've been going back over the last several weeks through this series called Authentic Faith, the Church, and looking at these and several other really key elements that make any gathering a church. And, and without these key elements, a gathering is not a church. And that's why we're walking through them. This morning we're looking at giving. And once again, I'm using Daniel Strickland's um, metaphor of a tree because I really, it, it just makes so much sense to me and it, 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 I think it ties it all together. Kind of gives us some mental scaffolding, if you would, to kind of put all these, somewhere to put all this stuff in our heads and our hearts. Here's the basic idea of that is that what, what we actually do and the fruit that that produces in our lives is always going to be rooted in the deepest beliefs that we have deepest truths if it comes to God and his purposes. And then out of those deepest truths come the, the rights and the wrongs and the values that are built on those deepest truths. And then that's where the actions come from and the actions produce the fruit. So if giving were a tree, it's important that we don't start somewhere else besides where God starts. Giving the roots of the tree is that everything belongs to God already. Everything belongs to God already, and every good and perfect gift that comes down, from, it comes down from God. Every single thing that's good in the world, everything that's truly true or really great comes from Him. The trunk of the tree of giving would be that giving then is a response to that. It's worship. It's an expression of trust. It's an investment in God and in His purposes. It's not something we came up to make sure the light bill gets paid. It's a response to God who created this entire everything and gives us so much more. The branches then of the tree of giving would be the faithful, sacrificial, and cheerful giving of God's people. That we would give to him in response and in those ways, but we would make that happen. And the fruit would be more blessing from God, increased faith for us, more joy, and a genuinely different world. Because we are here to do God's business on this planet. We are here to expand his kingdom right here, right now, before Jesus comes back, to get things ready for Jesus to come back. Giving makes that possible. So that lays it all out right there. That's pretty much where we're going today, but now let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's look a little closer at the roots. First of all, God owns everything and provides everything good. Everything in its original and perfect design was perfect. We see this in Genesis 1. We see this idea that God owns everything and ultimately we've got to respond to that if we're sane. And that we see that throughout the scripture. Psalm 24, 1. Would you read this one with me? It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Let's try that one more time. Let's all read this out loud together if you can. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. James says it even clearer in the New Testament when he writes, So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we out of all creation, became his prized possession. 
Here's a second major truth. Still, we're still in the roots of this tree, okay? We're still in the idea that God owns everything. Everything belongs to Him. Everything good ever ultimately comes from Him. God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. And this is a really good thing, okay? Because we all think that we deserve more. You know those little boxes of donuts that say you deserve a donut? Does anybody really deserve a donut? And if you're gluten intolerant or you are uh, dairy intolerant or if you are uh, diabetic or something else, that, that's, do you really deserve all that pain and agony? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, well, what do we really deserve? Here, here's another way to think about it. Please don't let me ruin birthdays for anybody. But I'm telling you, when we celebrate birthdays, we're celebrating the anniversary of a day where we were born. But shouldn't we be celebrating mothers? They're the ones who did all the work that day. Are you with me? And if you're, still if you're still around all these years later, I guarantee you not only your mother, but your father, some grandparents, some uncles, aunts, somebody else also invested in you. Your, your siblings let you live. I'm not sure that we have as much to do with our birthdays and the fact that we're still alive as we think. Do we really deserve to be celebrated on our birthdays? Again, don't let me ruin birthdays, I'm just saying. Does this make sense? C.S. Lewis says it a little better. I'm going to quote him. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, that's God's service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. In addition to literally everything in all creation that's good, God offers us salvation and wisdom. Paul sa Peter says that he gives us everything that we need for living a godly life. Paul says that he gives us the desire and the power to please him. That he remakes us so that we can devote ourselves to doing what is right. This, as always, I've got a long list of scriptures. There's no way to read every single one, but I, my dream is that you... You do read all of those. They're in your bulletin insert. If you happen to be listening to this online right now, talking to all the online people, that's creepy, but there you go. I guarantee you there is, an, uh, there is an attachment that gives you those scriptures as well. But here's the third big root that's still within this root system that says God owns everything and everything good ultimately comes from Him. And that's where the whole idea of giving has to start. The third big idea is this. God deserves to be first and to get our best. Would you say that out loud with me? God deserves to be first and to get our best. You see this idea all the way through Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was part of their legal system. In the New Testament, it's more part of Jesus' dream for his people. But you see it all the way through. The first time you see someone coming to God and you see a hint of this idea is actually Genesis chapter 4 when Cain and Abel come to present some sacrifices to God. Normally when we tell that story, we're talking about that murder is wrong or you should get along better with your siblings or something like this. But this is very insightful about giving. I'm going to read just a couple verses from that to you. It says, Cain presented some of his crops, but Abel brought the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. See, Abel got it and Cain did not. Abel got that everything really belonged to God and everything good that he had came from him. So in response to that, he gave him the first share, the best stuff out of what he had produced. 
Cain was like, ah, rats, it's time to worship again. I better give God something. Totally different, totally different why behind probably a similar what. In the Old Testament, the minimums, all the way through consistently, the minimum giving was the tithe and the first fruits. Tithe means one-tenth. You've probably heard this, I'm just trying to be clear. Tithe means one-tenth. First fruits means the first stuff, the best. You take, if somebody gave you $100, you take 10, you give that to God, and then you figure out what you're going to do with the other 90. That's how that works. This, what happened though, long before the law happened. We, we tend to think about the Old Testament as all being under Moses' law. It kind of sort of was. It's all under a different kind of arrangement between God and people that we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. But long before God made it a law, you see this happening. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. We see that in Genesis 14. We see it celebrated and expounded upon in Hebrews 7. Jacob tithed. There, there were offerings and all that. Whenever you see Israel doing things right and actually following God and God blessing them and everything growing and being good, you see this as a part of the regular rhythm of their life. Both of these was just part of it. You see it just come up over and over and over again. Whenever you see somebody... Um, bringing Israel back uh, whether they've fallen away and God has let someone capture them or something terrible has happened. Uh, two specific examples that are listed in your insert is Hezekiah's story and Ezra's story. But anytime you see a revival happen, part of that revival would include they had to destroy all their idols first. And then the second thing was they brought the tithe and the first fruits again. This was required. It was legal. And if you, I hope you fact check me. I hope you at least look all this stuff up in the scripture. I know that in the age of the internet, you're all, a lot of people are probably Googling me right now. Is he right about that? And that's okay. And one of the things you'll find is you'll find some people, some people on this subject will tell you that anything in the old covenant just does not matter anymore. Here's what I'd like to explain to you this morning. The old covenant is different. We're not under law, but under grace. We have, Jesus gave us a completely different thing, but it's the same God. His heart is the same. Jesus took the legal minimums of the Old Testament to heart-level extremes. Let me say that one more time. Jesus took the legal minimums of the Old Testament to heart-level extremes. Jesus helped us understand. I, I know that you know this, so this is just one example. I'll give you a couple more actual stories about Jesus in a second. But see if this doesn't sound familiar. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not commit murder. But I tell you, if anyone is angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. Have you heard this one? Okay? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is it, you see how he does that? It's not that he's saying that murder isn't wrong anymore. He's not saying that you're still under the law and that's how you earn your way to Jesus. But he's taking a legal minimum from the Old Testament and taking it to a heart level extreme. And he's opening up God's heart to us, helping us see God. It's very important that we understand anything from the Old Testament in light of that truth because that's, that's how it still applies. That's how it still makes sense to us. Jesus said, I have not come, I'm quoting Jesus here, he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
There's a difference. Abolish means it doesn't matter at all. Fulfill means this is what it was really all about. This is how you really connect. Okay? So when we look at the law, we've got to understand that the law is, we're not under the law anymore, but it's the same God, it's the same heart. What does that tell us about him? And when we look at the prophets, which we're about to do in just a second, we need to do the same thing. Here's what God said to his people through the prophet Malachi. He said, you have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now again, this is the Old Testament. This is God talking through a very specific prophet to a specific group of people under the Old Covenant. It would be a mistake to just instantly, like automatically cut and paste anything out of the pages of the Old Testament. Instantly say that applies to me in this way. With no further thought, no further prayer, nothing else. But let me tell you something. Out of my own life, and anyone else I've ever known well enough that we've talked about this issue. I've never known anyone who didn't take that seriously, that didn't test God in that, that didn't go out and say, you know what, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to do the tithe thing. I'm going to do the first fruits thing. I'm going to see if that still applies, that God did not bless them. I've never seen that not happen when people dared to try that. The second thing is this. Um, I want to make it clear that this is not a health and wealth gospel. Even in the Old Testament, this is not what he was saying. He was not saying, if you give the tithe, if you give your first fruits, like it's some sort of a magic formula, we're all going to be flying around in Learjets, wearing really white, shiny suits, combing our hair straight back. You know what I'm saying? That's not what he's saying. That's not what it's about at all. Let's look at another glimpse of Jesus to see Jesus. This is the ultimate expression of God in his heart is Jesus Christ himself. In Luke 11, there's this really cool story happens like this. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees, are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish. But inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness, fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? Listen what he says next. So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and you will be clean all over. You see what he's doing? He's taking an Old Testament minimum and taking it to a heart level extreme. It is even clear in the next verse. It says, what sorrow waits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And again, if you fact check me, if you Google this out, you're going to see some people say because of the, that Jesus said that before he died and rose and came to power as the ultimate authority in the universe. Therefore, that's still old covenant, but that doesn't apply anymore. I'm going to just say again, I see what you're saying, except Jesus always took Old Testament minimums to heart level extremes. And, and this is still the same Jesus. And see the point. 
The point is not you have to give this 10% as much as this is what we are giving in response to God. We are giving, and what God loves is that we help the poor, not that we measure it out to exactly 10%. It's a different perspective. This is why the early church got this and why they looked so different than the world around them. We've been through this recently. I hope this sounds really familiar to them, to you. But the early church, the Acts 2 through chapters on pretty early in Acts, says this. They had everything in common. That's a lot more than just 10%. They gave extra when anything was needed. They consistently served the poor and the orphans and the widows. That was one of their highest priorities ever. They sent offerings between churches, when they found out that different churches were suffering, they would send offerings for other churches. It wasn't just offerings for themselves. They fully submitted, supported missions around the world. That's why we're here today. That's how we know about it. It's because they got the word out in that first century. It's a completely different thing than I've got to make sure I give at least 10%. It was everything belongs to God and, every, and God wants us to use everything he gives us to bless others. So how in the world can I do that to the best of my possible ability? As an individual, as a family, as a church, how can we possibly do that? That was the perspective. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira got killed. It's a weird story. God just strikes him dead. We, we joke about this sometimes. I hope God doesn't strike me dead. I hope God doesn't smite me. This is one of those chances where it actually happened. This, this straight up happened. And here's why. Because this was how the early church was. A lot of the people who gave the most kind of were getting a little bit popular. People are like, dude, that Barnabas, for example. Awesome guy. He sold all this land. He gave all of it to God. What a great thing. Well, they say, hey, we got some land. Let's sell it. We'll give some of the money, but we'll tell them it was all of it. So that's exactly what they did. They sold some land. They brought some of the money to the church. It's probably a lot of money. It's probably a really great offering as far as that goes. All of that, neither one of those was bad. In fact, when you read this, and I hope you go back and read the whole story in Acts chapter 5, here's what happened. Peter confronts them, and he says, look, that was your land. You didn't have to sell it. You did not legally have to sell this. God did not require you to sell it. And when you sold it, that would be your money. You did not have to give all of that money. The problem is, you're doing the whole process for the wrong reasons. Secondly, you lied. Smite. <laughs> it's crazy, but that's exactly what happened. Actually, you know, we almost any church everywhere, including us, takes up an offering every single Sunday morning. Here's one of the places we get that idea. It was actually Paul writing about an offering that one church was giving to another. But it's just, it's made sense and kind of gives us a window into how they did things. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2 says, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. Now the Jewish Christians who would have been listening to this, I guarantee you they would have assumed that a portion meant the tithe or it meant the first fruits. But I think it's important to note that that's not what he says here. For whatever reason you want to read into it, here he says a portion. Why? Because it's a why thing. Not a what thing. 
in the New Testament. Are you guys, is this connect, do you guys get this? Is this making some sense? I sure hope so, because this is so important. And it's so much bigger than what we give to church. It's so much bigger than what we put in the offering plate. This is a perspective that's about everything that has to do with what we give and what really belongs to God. It's everything, everything. Uh, here's something Paul said uh, that doesn't have to do with offerings at church, but it has to do with how we treat money. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. John writes this, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. We also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Our lives, that's a whole lot more than 10% of money or anything else, right? But look at the next part. It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The obvious answer that he's assuming is, it doesn't. So we come to the, the trunk and the first branches of the tree of giving, and this is it. Giving is worship. It's trust. It's an investment. When we take up the offering, it's not just something that we have put into the mix because somehow we've got to turn the lights on, got to turn the sound system on, got to pay some people, all that kind of stuff. It's not something we made up. This is something God made up. This is something that God uh, we do in response to God. It's not part of our worship service, a necessary evil part of our worship service. It is worship. We talked a couple weeks ago about what makes worship worship. It, we worship in spirit and in truth. Our spirits shift. We act on the truth. We make the truth part of us. And when we give in the ways that Jesus tells us to give, for, for the reasons he tells us to give, our souls shift. The truth is affirmed. Things change. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. As we start to turn the corner and wrap up today, I, I, I would love for you to... Um, just dream with me a little. But first, let me give you a, a quote from Winston Churchill that I like. I don't believe Winston Churchill was a Christian, but I quoted Yoda last week, if anybody was here. <laughs> and I believe that when we hear a truth claim anywhere, that you, if it matches up to something God says, then we can say that that's true. If it doesn't match up to something God says, then we can say it's not true. And in this case, I agree with Winston Churchill. He says, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. I really like that. But as I was doing some research for this message, I came across an article by Relevant Magazine and I kind of spiraled down. Do you ever do that? Click through all those little blue words and you're just like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and you just keep on going? It kind of happened to me this time. I don't have time to put all the documentation in this. If you want to look, I'd start with Relevant Magazine, see what this, but this blew my mind and it got me so excited and I hope that's exactly what it does for you this morning. But Relevant Magazine did some uh, research about tithing and offering and, and stuff in a way that I'd never seen it presented before and I, I just love this. They, first they looked back at the Great Depression. They found out that looking at what the average income was at that time and everything else that churches gave per capita about 3.3%. 
not 10%, but about 3.3%. And in the Great Depression, when you have pretty much nothing at all, that's pretty good. You know what we give today per capita? 2.5%. One quarter of the 10% minimum, legal minimum back in the Old Testament. Interesting. 25% of people who uh, claim to be on polls and, and surveys and everything else, claim to be uh, committed Christians and all that stuff, 25% max say they tithe. In most churches surveyed where they were willing to talk about their money, about 80% of the people provided about 2%, not 20. You've heard that 80-20 a lot. 80% provided 2% of the church's budget and 20% provided the rest. That's kind of scary. But here's where it gets exciting. They did some math about what people make in America and the median things that the government did, and some poll response, and somehow, I don't, I don't know how they did it. But here's what they came up with. If every single person who claims to be a follower of Jesus in every single church, every denomination, every single flavor of Christianity there is, every single one tithe faithfully, you know how much we'd have? We'd have $165 billion dollars extra every year in addition to all the money that's given in every church around the world 165 billion on top of that every single year that's an astounding amount of money let me put that in perspective right now all the known missions worldwide that we know about a hundred uh, one billion dollars would fund all of them every year that's a lot of money, but $1 billion would fund all the known missions that we know about. $12 billion, people who are literacy experts, they went to them and said, hey, what would it take to wipe out illiteracy around the world? We're talking about paying teachers, building schools, creating materials, all of that stuff. They said, oh, it'd cost probably about $12 billion. They said, hey, what would it take to fit, just completely be done with the whole water sanitation issues? There's all these all these parachurch organizations that are trying to solve that and god bless every single one of them what would it take just wipe that out oh it'd take like 15 billion dollars it's a lot of money what about if we were to eliminate world hunger not just give them food but also create systems where people could create their own food or make money and be able to buy food or whatever else create just change things and they said oh that'd take years it'd probably take at least 25 billion dollars and all of those sound absolutely astronomical and really, really ridiculous, but listen, $165 billion? We haven't even got to 65 yet. That leaves $100 billion for local ministries. Stuff like helping people in our community through hunger and poverty and helping single parents. What if the church could eliminate all the health care issues that we have and fully pay for adoptions? or work in prisons in more effective ways than we've ever been able to do, or help people get out of debt so that they could give more faithfully and not live in so much stress. What? There's almost endless possibilities. That's every single church everywhere. That's every person who even claims to be a, a, a Christian. That's a big lofty goal, but can you at least capture, can you capture the dream? Do you see how that could, how we could kind of get there? And this whole service, this whole series is not about anything in particular that I, I, I believe that Morrison Hill's just doing so bad or doing so good. We're not trying to pat ourselves on the back or punish each other. This is not it. We're just looking at the scripture and going, what does it actually say and what should we do about that? That's it. That's all we're doing here. But let me just say this one, one thing 
about our church in particular, and we're going to wrap up. Here's one thing that we struggle with every year. We're still paying off a mortgage for this building. And it's roughly, people that crunch the numbers know this a lot better than me. I, I, I need to round it off, so I'm rounding. Okay, but it's about $8,000 a month. If we just had a few people do like the early church did and sell land or whatever, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying, dream with me. If we got that eliminated, that, then our conversation at, at board meetings would not be, God, how are we going to pay this? But it would be, God, what do you want us to do with this $8,000 this month? What do you want to do, us to do with this $8,000 this month? And I, I crunched the ratios that they were using and all that stuff. And right now, if we all started giving even close to the 10% mark, and again, it's not a legal thing anymore. It's a heart thing. It's something that everybody does in response to Jesus themselves. But I'm telling you, if we got even close, we would triple, triple the budget that's being proposed next week. Our giving would triple that. Easily. So we wouldn't be having conversations about, can we possibly pay this? We'd be having conversations with, so God, since you provided this, what is it that you want us to do? And I believe that that is God's heart. I believe that's what it's about. I believe when we start saying, how much do I have to, 10% if we start there, or somebody's got to pay, I guess nobody else will, I guess I will have to. If that's where our giving starts, that's why it's so frustrating and meaningless and, and, and just, it's not fun at all. But when it starts with God, it's all God's anyway. And he, if he gave it to me, he gave it for a reason. And this is his heart and this is his heart. And how do I participate in that best? God, let me work. When we start there, stuff happens. For what it's worth, Dave Ramsey teaches tithing unapologetically as um, one of his key strategies for freedom and peace. And he knows more about money than I do. So I'm going to say that. But this is Paul. This is the scripture itself. And I've got to be honest with you. I've got to, got, to, got to give you the actual scripture. This is where we're coming from. This is where we're wrapping up this morning. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. And in the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. That's the dream. That's what it's about. And one more time, this is not, please don't misunderstand me, this is not a health and wealth thing. I'm not trying to give you formulas. I'm not trying to turn this into legalistic things again, which is what Jesus eradicated and replaced with heart stuff. There's no very special offering, in case you were really stressed about that. This is not a big introduction to a very special offering we're taking today. Okay? That's not happening. I will say this, that digital giving is, is open 24-7. And we do do this 
every single week. So you'll have more chances to respond if God is convicting you about this. But that's not what this is about. We're just looking at what the scripture says. And, and, and my brothers and sisters, that's what has to happen in every area of our lives. As we stand and sing, this is my prayer to you. This is my prayer for you. This is my challenge to you. Would you commit one more time? Maybe for the first time if that's never happened. But would you commit to do whatever God is telling you? Whatever Jesus has said, I'm trying to teach you to obey everything he's commanded. Would you commit to do that this morning? Whatever that means to you. Give your life to him. Come back to him. Join our church in some way. Start giving more. Get sit back down and just give online whatever i don't know what he's telling you to do but i'm asking you to respond to him however he's leading you as we stand and sing